The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. I have this on? Yeah. Good morning, everyone. Our scripture reading this morning is Titus chapter 1. The book of Titus, chapter 1. If you don't mind, please stand as we read God's word. Titus, chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. We thank God for his holy word. Well, please join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for these words, and we ask for your help in unpacking them. God, I can imagine that there may be some here today who um, these words on the surface could feel totally irrelevant. There's pain in their personal lives. There are hardships even to get up and walk with you in the morning to, um, to feel any joy of any kind. Lord, you know these struggles. You are with us in them. And I pray that you'd surprise us this morning by showing us how order in the church actually does matter for our personal lives. I pray that you'd give us a vision for holding on to the truth a vision for letting that truth blossom in us into lives of godliness. I pray that you would 
give us confidence in this body of believers and that you would help us to see the way you want things to be. Lord, we pray that this church and your church all over the world would truly be the pillar and buttress of truth, that you would use us like a lighthouse for this world, that you would use us as salt and light. We pray, God, that um, that we would never lose um, our saltiness, as you say in the Gospel of Matthew. But Lord, we ask that um, that you would refine us. We ask that you would give us wisdom. And we pray that the character of Christ would truly be reflected in our midst. So do this good work in us now. Through your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. I am excited for us to have this short series in the book of Titus. Um, we're calling it Transformed by Truth. Because what we're going to see in all three chapters is that it's beliefs that drive behaviors. It's doctrine that determines right living. It's pure truth that results in pure lives. But what do you do when one or both of those aren't present? Chapter 1 shows us that we need authority in the church that can act when pure doctrine is being compromised and impure living is plaguing the church. Now, that word authority... We don't like that. We live in a society that's deeply skeptical about authority. You can see that as early as, I don't know, the Boston Tea Party. Uh, Maybe Vietnam and Watergate really ramped up that distrust of authority. And these days, we just cynically expect that leaders are going to hide aspects of the truth. They're going to have some sort of personal scandals. The only question is whether they'll be made of Teflon enough to survive the fallout. Well, the Bible is also realistic about the dangers inherent to leadership, and yet it still insists that there must be a firm authority structure in the church. And that's because the Bible is also realistic about what happens when there's not firm leadership in the church. Chaos emerges on the inside, and attacks come from the outside, and then in the end, there is no church, at least not anything that resembles the church that was formed by Jesus and his apostles. And so how do we keep a church from descending into chaos and lies and impurity? Our main thought today is that God puts his church in order through sending elders who reflect the character of Christ to correct the wayward. God puts his church in order through sending elders who reflect the character of Christ. He sends them to correct the wayward. Now, of course, elders do a lot more than just correct the wayward. They teach and they preach God's word. They uh, oversee the sacraments. They give comfort and courage to the weak. They devote themselves to prayer. But the focus in this chapter is on the need for elders to put the church in order by correcting the wayward. And it's important for you to see that reasoning if you're ever going to entrust yourselves to your church leaders, if you're ever going to allow them to speak in sensitive ways into your own life. So let's start with the first five verses, and we're going to see that the, sort of the priorities that lead God to send elders. Now, the book of Titus, like a lot of New Testament books, is a letter. It's a letter from the Apostle Paul to one of his ministry co-workers. And it may seem strange, like we're kind of listening in on a conversation between these two men. Like, how, how could that be helpful for us today? But what we need to understand is that in the ancient world... Letters were often intended for a larger audience than is specifically indicated. So they'd be read to the whole household. Maybe they'd be passed around to neighbors. Or they could be used as reference letters. 
And that's a bit of what Paul intends here. We can see evidence within the letter that Paul wants all of the church leaders in Crete to understand through this letter who Titus is and what is his mission. And then, presumably, when that happened, the churches in Crete found so much helpful material in this letter that they kept referring to it. They kept circulating it. And then eventually this letter made its way into the collection of writings that were all in harmony with each other and were all edifying to the whole church. And that collection became known as the New Testament, which, of course, is what the Holy Spirit intended all along since he inspired the apostle to write these words. And God in his sovereignty preserved these words for our use today. So Paul starts out introducing himself. It was the custom in ancient letters. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to explain the purpose of his service to God. He gives us the why of his apostleship. And he does this in a way that really is going to set out the theme for the whole letter. He says that he's a servant and apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Now, God's elect is shorthand for true Christians everywhere, including those who haven't yet come to Christ. God knows who are his. They are chosen to belong to him. His spirit is coming for them. And so it's Paul's job and it's the church's job to see to the faith of the elect, to cultivate the faith of those who are already in the church, and to share the gospel freely and broadly to all, not knowing who will come to faith as a result. God knows who will come to faith. We don't. Now, Paul says that he works for the sake of God's elect. And specifically, that faith is one, we're told, that plays out through the knowledge of truth, which accords with godliness. Do you see how those words connect to our series title, Transformed by Truth? When saving faith is truly present, as that person grows in the knowledge of the truth, it then results in godly living. And that's what Paul wants to emphasize in this letter. So on the one hand, he's not interested in a faith that's content to stay ignorant of the truth, because that person is going to be swept away by every wind of doctrine, and any popular new idea that just remotely sounds Christian is going to attract them like flies to honey. He doesn't want that. So God's people of faith need to be growing in actual knowledge of the truth. But on the other hand, they shouldn't know that truth just like you know school facts, and that's all. No, they need to know it like you know your own lifestyle. That truth needs to be internalized and lived out. It needs to accord with godly living, or else it hasn't really been known at all. Now, at this point, we might feel a bit overwhelmed. You know, I, I like the idea of having a faith that's based on truth, that accords with godliness, but it sounds so grandiose, and I feel so tired and ordinary. So it's here that verse 2 brings motivation into the picture. We have an eternal hope. Now, people do all kinds of extreme and impossible things based solely on the possibility of winning a prize or improving their lot in life. They have just a possible hope, and it gives them motivation. Well, we have a certain hope of eternal life, fullness of joy in the presence of God. So in Titus, that thought of hope is never far from the reality of truth transforming us. 
the hope of our faith, that hope is, is like a climate or it's like, it's like the ecosystem in which truth transforms us. Our hope of eternal life is solid. Verse 2 says that God, who never lies, promised it before the ages began. It's a promise more ancient and established than the sun or the ground that we're walking on. Before the ages began, God promised that his people would live with him forever. And we know it's not just words because verse 3 reminds us that at the proper time, this hope of eternal life was manifested in his word through the preaching with which Paul has been entrusted by the command of God the Savior. So what Paul's getting at is that his very preaching, the same preaching that he's going to be spreading all over Crete through Titus's work, that preaching contains the evidence of God's faithfulness to his people because it's centered on the good news of Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and Paul preaches that evidence of the hope of eternal life. So remember all these things that Paul's apostleship is about. The faith of God's elect, their knowledge, their godly living, the faithful passing on of God's word, because it contains the hope of eternal life. And all of Paul's work is helping to fulfill the promise of God, who, by the way, never lies. We're told that explicitly. I think it's a purposeful contrast to the Cretans. You see down in verse 12, they're liars, but God never lies. So how will Paul go about pursuing all of these things? How will knowledge and godly living and the promises of God move forward? Enter Titus. He's called Titus, my true child in a common faith. Titus shares the same faith as Paul because he's a true spiritual son of this apostle. So Paul wants everyone who reads this letter to know that Titus is no illegitimate son, no fake associate of the apostles. He's the real deal. And so the Cretan Christians should take Titus's authority seriously when he comes to their churches. Paul prays for Titus, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And then right after the introduction, Paul launches into this reminder of Titus's mission. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, you've probably seen Crete on a map. It's that long island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. It's south of Greece and Turkey. It's 3,219 square miles in area. Travel across Crete was hard because of the mountains, and there's no evidence that there was a Roman road system there. So it's rugged terrain, and uh, also Roman exiles at this time. Criminals were exiled to Crete. So in addition to the rough terrain, you've also got a rough collection of people. And Paul wanted to make sure that the gospel permeated every city, every church on that island. So he sent Titus, by birth a Greek, to get this job done. How would the churches get in order? God puts his church in order by sending elders. And here he was appointing elders through Paul and Titus, which is kind of like the traveling church planting elders, then passing off authority to elders who had been raised up from within the church. Now, we know Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And we know from other parts of Scripture that the church is to be led by men under Christ who shepherd and serve in his likeness. And sometimes they're called pastors. Sometimes they're called elders or overseers. Those terms are just interchangeable. 
and the church in every city was to have multiple elders appointed and that would be how order would be brought to the churches so the presence of elders would allow the common faith to flourish elders would provide stable hope-filled ecosystem in which the knowledge of truth could transform lives just as god had promised it would so his grace and peace will become a reality for the people of crete through the appointment of elders and the same is true in illinois as well god puts his church in order by establishing elders but these elders aren't just any available men and they're not just any competent men that's not what's important they are men of character so we're not looking primarily for dynamic personality We're not looking primarily for administrative vision and ability. We're not looking for eloquence. We're looking for character. God puts his church in order by sending elders who reflect the character of Christ. And verses 6 through 9 help us to see that character clearly. First, we see three general guidelines. One, if anyone is above reproach. And then verse 7 comes back to that language. Um, It says, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Above reproach just means, it's it's a general way of saying this person has a good reputation. It doesn't mean he's perfect, or else God knows I couldn't stand before you here today. But it does mean that he's personally well thought of by outsiders and insiders, and that when he's not perfect, he owns that quickly and models for the church what repentance and seizing hold of the grace of God looks like. Second general principle, an elder should be the husband of one wife, or literally a one-woman man. He's not a polygamist. That, that was actually relevant in the ancient culture. It's still relevant in a number of cultures around the world. But more to the point, in our context, he's not an adulterer. He's true to his wife, not leaving her or forsaking her, not even for pornography. Now, I do want to specify here that This is not saying that a pastor must be married. There have been many, many faithful elders, pastors, overseers across the centuries who have believed that the best way for them personally to be devoted to God was through celibacy. And the most perfect pastor ever, Jesus, was never married. Neither was the Apostle Paul. So having a wife and children is not a requirement for eldership. But if you're married, you'd better be faithful to your wife. Third general principle, his children are faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. If you have the ESV text, it actually says his children are believing. In my view, that's not the best choice of words here. It translates the Greek word pista as believing, which it can mean in some context, but I think a better translation for this context would be faithful or trustworthy. So, for example, the CST version says, with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. Or another version says, having steadfast children, not charged with riotous living. So the idea isn't that you're certain they're Christians. That, that would be very difficult to gauge. You know, all of our kids who are raised in the church are among, you know, they have this Christian milieu about them. Um, but how much of it have they internalized? We think we know. We ask them questions. We try to shepherd them. Um, but... But how can you ensure that they are believing? 
Um, and it would be difficult to gauge, and it would also add insane pressure on those kids as well, right? Like, pastor's kids, you better pretend that you believe at least, and that's not what we want at all. Rather, the term faithful here implies that they generally obey their parents. They receive correction well. They don't have poisonous attitudes and reckless behaviors. There's not this deep-seated rebellion against parental authority. And when you look at the term debauchery, it shows that we probably have the teen years most in view. So this qualification of having faithful children is very important to keep in mind. First Timothy says, For if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So I'm asking you to hold me to the fire on this one, okay? If my kids, as they grow, if they're not faithful to generally do what Sarah and I expect of them, if they're out of control, if they're clearly wild and disrespectful, well then, at some point I need to step down and find a new occupation. I should love my kids enough to do that. And I should love the church enough to do that. So while this requirement is serious, I hope you also see that it's not licensed for me to be controlling or to crush the spirit of my kids, like grabbing them by the neck and saying, you will be well-behaved, which is usually just another way of saying, you will not make me look bad. Not only is that cruel, but it wouldn't accomplish the goal anyway. Pastors' kids are kids. They're allowed to learn by mistake, just like the rest of us. And sometimes a five-year-old just wants to roll down the aisle before church. I, I don't think that disqualifies me, but if you, do, if you think it does, let's talk afterward. Uh, I just want to pause here and ask a question. Why do we have this checklist of qualifications? Why can't we just say, you know, if anyone is full of love and faith, then he should be an elder? Wouldn't that accomplish about the same thing? Maybe if you could accurately judge those qualities. But have you ever seen a leader who, with their words and smiles, made you feel all warm and loved, but then through their decisions, utterly ran people into the ground? Or have you ever seen a leader who maybe on the surface didn't feel overly warm, but then gained a proven track record of doing the hard, self-sacrificial things that were truly in the best interest of those he was leading? Did you ever see a pastor who could talk big about the need for faith, but then he didn't model it himself when things went sideways? And then have you ever seen a less demonstrative pastor who, through a season of dark suffering, models unshakable confidence in God and hope that no earthly loss can quench? So you see, sometimes we tend to judge character with our feelings instead of with concrete observations. And so these qualifications are meant to show us what faith, hope, and love look like in action. So using the, the kids one uh, as an example, if I'm loving my kids well, if I'm a man of love, I'm loving my kids well, and I'm a man of faith, I'm trusting God in my parenting. And if I'm doing it with joy because of the hope that I have, well, then my kids, even if they're not yet Christians, they will want to respect me and to stay out of trouble. And if that's not working out, well, then I need to pull out of church leadership to focus on loving them even better. Let's move on to some prohibitions that are fairly self-explanatory. It says he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. 
If you ever see qualities like that developing in any of your elders, please bring it to the attention of the other elders. It's our job to shepherd each other as well, and we take it seriously. And if, if what you described, if what you've seen is corroborated over time, or if it was just like this flagrant incident that was noted by others too, then we will address it without outing you. And if this represents a clear character flaw, if it is developing into an ongoing problem, at that point we would have the elder in question step down. Because again, the presence of any of these bad qualities shows that something more central is broken. It shows that we're not trusting God as we ought to, and we're not walking with his love in our hearts so that we can pass that love on to others. So instead of these character flaws, the text says that an elder should be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Hospitable, open with their home and family, able to be spontaneously generous with their time and resources. A lover of good. This man doesn't just note or approve of what's good. He delights in it. He, you can just like see his pleasure when he's talking about good things. Self-controlled and disciplined means his life is free from excesses, whether sexual or in relation to substances. And he's not motivated by urges and impulses. He's governed by the Holy Spirit. Upright and holy means this person just has a genuine purity about them. They seem different than others, like set apart in a good way, in a refreshing way. So pray for the pastors of this church that we would grow to more and more reflect this happy righteousness of God. I want to grow like that so much. The picture that we're getting is that elders are to be the leaders by example in being transformed by truth. So good doctrine doesn't only bring us to God, it leads us into godliness. And so even though these are qualifications for elders, why not use them as a reflection of Christ for all of us to aim for, right? And not only can we use these qualities to assess elders and to assess ourselves, but then we can use them to pray for those around us. Is someone in the church immature in some way? Are they seriously bumming you out with their ungodliness in some area of life? Well, instead of fuming about it and holding a grudge, why not secretly pray for them? Maybe if we learn to really pray for each other's truest ongoing needs for character change, then maybe we will never have a shortage at this church of men and women who are well qualified for various ministry roles. This summary of the elders' Christ-like qualities ends with some thoughts about his teaching. It says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Elders must hold to this book. They must communicate it faithfully, not get creative and add to it. They must not dismiss parts of it and take away from what God has said. And we see that there are two prongs to what the pastor elder must teach what he must do in his teaching. First, he must give instruction in sound doctrine. And second, he must rebuke those who contradict it. It's been said that a church leader ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and one for driving away wolves and thieves. And that leads us into our final section, verses 16, uh, 10 through 16, which uh, this section focuses on why elders are needed. Remember our theme statement? It said, God puts his church in order 
through sending elders who reflect the character of Christ to correct the wayward. He sends them to correct the wayward. It's not the only thing elders do, but it is the focus here in Titus 1. If a church needs to be put in order and all the elders are doing is encouraging everyone, even those who are causing havoc in the church, then that's actually not loving the sheep because it's not protecting the sheep. Correction is needed, and verse 10 tells us why. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So this is a reality right from the start of the church and it continues down into our time that people come to the church wanting to use the church for their own goals. They want shameful gain, whether that's money or popularity or power. And so they teach something unique that'll create a buzz and get a following. They're not interested in the trustworthy word and the sound doctrine that flows from it. They start side conversations based on empty and deceptive ideas. So how do we combat stuff like that? Head on. Directly head on. We, we confront them silencing prideful intruders through warning, if necessary, through church discipline and public rebuke. So in Crete, in Titus's day, Paul says that especially those of the circumcision party were upsetting people. So likely these people were teaching that uh, circumcision and maybe other parts of the Jewish ceremonial law were necessary in order for Christians to be legit. And there's a lot written about that error, especially if you read the book of Galatians. But for our purposes, we're just going to note that Paul hits this head on by choosing Titus to deal with the circumcision party. Okay, we read in Galatians 2, Titus was a Greek and he was uncircumcised. I don't know how Titus felt about everyone knowing if he was circumcised or not, but Paul just says it. He's not. And, and so he's sending this clearly uncircumcised guy to deal with these people who say, you must be circumcised in order to be right with God. So he takes it head on. And uh, in addition to bad teaching, there was also bad living that was spreading through these churches. Verse 12 says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. I, I feel like this statement by, might be a little shocking to us. Like, whoa, whoa, Paul, where is your love for these people that you're trying to reach? Like, how can you just stereotype them like that? But here's the thing, though. Who better to diagnose a culture than its own voices? Crete is a tough assignment, and Paul wants Titus to have his eyes wide open. So he warns him, using one of the popular Cretan voices of the time. He's likely referring, in fact, to a poet named Callimachus. And we're not to think that Callimachus was actually a prophet. Poets in the Greco-Roman world, they were considered inspired. So if you're a poet or a philosopher, your words were sometimes considered prophetic by the pagans. So Paul's just pointing out how important this voice was in the culture of that time. And he's being very tongue-in-cheek here. Like, you can almost hear Paul chuckling under his breath as he's writing this. He's like, well, they've testified about themselves. Uh, it's, it's like, I don't know, if I was preparing someone to go and minister to churches in Great Britain, and I, I, I warn him and say, um, just remember... British people can be very hard to please. As one of their own rock bands has testified, I can't get no satisfaction. So the point is that when a culture testifies about its own problems, you can usually trust that testimony. 
And even another, um, they've, they found other, you know, literature from Crete back then, even in the third century BC, you know, three centuries before this time. Uh, one source says, Cretans are thieves from way back, pirates. They never think along legal lines. And actually in the Greek language, Cretan became a byword for dishonest. So to Crete was to lie. And the poet of verse 12, he, you see he's calling his own people evil beasts. Well, history tells us that the island actually lacked any wild beasts, but ironically it had these people. I think that's what he's doing there. Um, what would be the tongue-in-cheek testimony about our own culture? I can imagine someone in another country watching our TV channels and then saying, Americans are certainly a free people. Free from any decent inhibitions, free from any respect for authority. So I don't think it's too hard for us to see how our own need for order is just as great as Crete's. We may be more honest than them, but that might just be because we have no shame and therefore no desire to cover things up. One scholar reflects that living the good life of the gospel is always a challenge when we live in a wider culture that defines the good life in other ways. It is particularly hard in a culture where newspapers cannot be trusted and politicians are corrupt. A harsh, selfish, racist culture in which there's a fear of crime. A culture where people are reluctant to do manual work, which is therefore left to migrant workers. A culture in which people routinely overeat. He says, and that was the culture of first century Crete, and yet easily a description of 21st century Western culture too. Now, we'd been talking about the teaching of empty talkers and deceivers, and then we took kind of a detour to discuss the moral problems of the Cretans. Why? Well, the function of the quote in verse 12 is to show that the doctrinal error is accompanied by moral corruption and vice versa. Rarely do you see one without the other. So failure to teach truth and failure to live morally go together, and it's not always clear which one comes first. In many cases, it's not the change in belief, not the wandering from the truth that comes first. In many cases, it's the desire for power or sex or money that comes first. And so then we jettison truth because we just want to justify the way we're living. So you may not think of yourself as a potential heretic, but are there any wrong behaviors that you're seeking to excuse, either in yourself or in people whose approval you most desire? Well, then be careful because it's our sinful nature to change truth until it fits with the way in which we desire to live. But the way that we're called to live is to bring our desires under the control of the unchanging truth. Can you think of times in your life when you've changed what you believe in order to match how you want to live? Admittedly, I can think of times in my life when I've made small compromises, maybe because I wanted to fit in with a certain crowd, or maybe because I just wanted to feel good about myself. And how did that work out for you? Not very satisfying, I would imagine. It could even wreck your life if you don't realize what you've done and come back quickly to the word of God as your golden standard. So what should elders do when, the churches, when in the churches people are holding up man-made teachings as a truth and they're holding up the culture's sin patterns as just normal life? Well, verse 13 tells us 
Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. When someone's walking toward the edge of a cliff, even if they're walking slowly, you act fast to stop them. You draw clear lines. You say, that way is not safe. This is the way we're going to go instead. And maybe here we could play a little make-believe. What if one of the pastors sat down with you and expressed a concern about a lifestyle choice or a book you were reading or a radio teacher you were following or an idea you'd been explaining to someone? How would you respond? Would you be offended? Would you get defensive? See, we're all for drawing lines to keep the church safe until we're the ones who need correction. So listen to these words from another pastor. He says, You can sound godly and live godlessly and end up being literally godless. So a loving leader will put your eternal destiny before your present comfort and will challenge and rebuke you if they see you treading that path. A loving leader will know that what is nicest for you to hear is not always what is best for you to hear. And for us in the West in the 21st century, this is an area of church life which is strongly countercultural. So trust the leadership of your church. So rest in the structures of the church. They provide a safe place to grow as a Christian. End quote. Are you humble enough to be rebuked? Are you loving enough to give rebukes to others, even if you're not an elder? This is how we care for one another. It's way easier to say nothing because that costs us nothing. And then we just let that person and everyone that they will influence go on their perilous way toward destruction. We'd like to think that it's a good thing not to have confrontation, but passages like this remind us that keeping a false peace can be one of the most heartless ways to lead. Elders must be willing to give sharp rebukes so that everyone can have the opportunity to grow sound in the faith. And the opposite of sound in the faith is devoting themselves to myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. The myths and the extra commands of false teachers, they always change over the centuries, but usually they have this, the same core of self-righteousness and aestheticism and maybe offering a sense of special anointing. So just do this diet or this exercise or say these types of special words. Do these practices and then you'll be closer to God. Verses 15 and 16 teach us how to think about these influences. First, understand that to the pure, all things are pure. In other words, to those who have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, all of creation looks pure. First Timothy 4 says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. So as Christians, we're able to go through life growing back toward the innocence of children who aren't scandalized or corrupted by every sketchy influence out there because their thoughts are simply and happily elsewhere. But... The text continues, to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Defiled and unbelieving. See that connection again between what we believe and how we live. When minds and consciences are defiled, nothing is pure. 
It makes me think of those kids in high school who could like find a dirty joke behind every innocent choice of words. And the people who come into our churches and who create a fear of defilement everywhere, they're actually showing their own defiled minds. So Paul's summary of these influencers is harsh. He says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Now, wait a minute. Let's think back over this whole section. If these Cretan troublemakers are legalists, if they're preaching that you need to be circumcised, maybe avoid certain foods, go through certain rituals, in other words, do more to try to be pure, how could these people also be brutes and gluttons? Aren't the people who promote extra rules the ones who are self-controlled and who have spotless behavior? Actually, no. The shocking truth of these verses is that a life that's centered on laws and rules, it may look for a moment as if it's promoting godliness, but actually it's limiting godliness. It's limiting it to a controllable sphere of activity in order, in, in, instead of making it an all-of-life endeavor. Because it's way easier to just check off boxes. Did this, did this, did this, I'm good. That's easier instead of doing the hard but actually effective thing of trusting God for your righteousness and walking with the Holy Spirit moment by moment. So man-made rules have no power to change our lives. And that's why the people who promote them always end up with some sort of hidden corruption controlling their lives. Ironically, their obsession with an external ritual purity exposes their lack of inner purity. Their avoidance of what's detestable actually makes their hearts detestable. Well, I think we've gotten a good picture of why God sends elders who are to reflect the character of Christ and he sends them to silence corrupt teaching and to rebuke corrupt living. That's how the church is put in order. God's solution to a disordered church is the provision of leaders like this. Will you trust your elders even when they're directly asking you to check yourself? Will you pray for your elders, knowing that they too need to grow in Christ-likeness? They too face the same temptations toward compromising the truth. Our elders will lead well, and our elders will be followed well when we're all looking closely at our ultimate lead pastor, Jesus himself. He was sent by the Father to create the church and to put it in order. And throughout his earthly life, he submitted himself to the scriptures, holding firm to the trustworthy word as taught. He wasn't arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. He was a lover of good. He freely shared what he had. He was self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Jesus took on those people who threatened his sheep either through their flawed teaching or their corrupt living. And he spoke about the connection between belief and behavior in his enemies. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Jesus wasn't afraid to protect the sheep, sometimes even from themselves. Like when he rebuked Peter, for suggesting an all-victory, never-suffering sort of spirituality. Jesus held the line. More than that, he put himself on the line, and he was, in the end, struck down for it. 
But that was all in God's plan, who raised him up and exalted him because of his humble obedience. So those who aspire to be leaders in the church, this is the way. Fearless opposition to error, even if it puts targets on our back. Complete trust in the God who vindicates his servants who reflect the character of Christ. So may God give us elders like this here at our church and in every town. And may he bless our church with true order so that the pure word of his truth can keep transforming the lives of the people of God. So God, that is our desire. Um, We don't want to just have an empty form here. and We don't want to be a society just like any other without any power for change. Lord, we thank you for your word. We know that your Holy Spirit broods over these words and applies them to our lives like a surgeon. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would make this vision of church beautiful in our minds and would release us from any hesitation to submit to godly elders. Lord, we pray also, I pray for myself as an elder. I pray for the other elders of this church, I ask that we would reflect the character of Christ and that you would rebuke us and correct us and shape us if that's not the case, when that's not the case. And Lord, we ask that we could be a part of um, establishing elders in other churches too. Use this church to keep planting and influencing other churches. We ask this for the sake of the faith of the elect. And we ask it for the glory of Christ. Amen.